You're listening to a special presentation at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. Well, good evening to all of you. Uh, It is wonderful to be here with you. I count this a tremendous privilege that uh, you guys have a Friday and Saturday free, and you have chosen to come here and to hear from me and to give two hours to, to listen to God's Word and to, to explore it together, and I don't take that lightly. That's uh, an incredible blessing and an incredible privilege, so thank you for that honor, and uh, I trust our, our time will be blessed together. Uh, just a real brief uh, intro to who I am, Professor Keith Evans, Pastor Keith Evans. I'm unfortunately not a doctor yet, been working on my dissertation uh, for a couple of years here, but uh, there are rumors going around that like I am the regional home exorcist or something uh, because I'm doing my PhD dissertation on... A re- oh, okay, yeah, that's the rumor. That's the source of the rumor. Uh, I'm doing my PhD dissertation on demonology, so I'm not, I'm not the regional home exorcist. Please don't ask me your demon questions. No, you can feel, <laughs> feel free to ask me demon questions if you want. But we're not talking about demons, so hopefully I didn't just disappoint everybody. We are talking about having the mind of Christ and using one's strength to serve. Um, but I've been in pastoral ministry for 12 years. i uh, been a professor for five years, professor of biblical counseling, as has already been said been married for 16 years. I have uh, four daughters, 13 and under. Even the dog is a female, so I'm the only male in the house. It's the only way that I can ensure that I, you know, I have the corner market on the, the man of the house, right? Um, I have all the testosterone of the home. Uh, look how it's working for me. Uh, but So yeah, that's a, a little bit about me. But uh, tonight we are considering having the mind of Christ using one's strength to serve, and the first part, we are considering having the mind of Christ, and the second part, using one's strength to serve. Um, About uh, 45 to 60 minutes of a presentation, and then break out for discussion for 20 to 30 minutes, depending on our time that we have, just to uh, set the expectations. So as far as having the mind of Christ, if, if we ever want to know how to do something. How is it that we do something? What are we to do? We don't look at merely the bare commands of Scripture. It's not just God says it, that settles it. That's true. That is true. God says it, that settles it. But (laughs) we want to look at the character of God, and we want to see how God does things, and we want to be like Him. We want to be like our Heavenly Father. And so we want to look uh, here tonight at how God uses his strength, how Christ used his strength and uses his strength. What, what is that strength and, and how he uses that to serve his people? And so as, as we begin, uh, what strength is that that Christ has? Well, it's, it's absolute, it's complete, it's total, it's supremacy, it's, it's omnipotence, right? It's absolute strength in the purest form. So we consider uh, the supremacy of Christ here. And uh, we're going to have a little bit of sword exercises. I'm going to have you going to a bunch of different places uh, in the scriptures. I'm a bit of a concepts guy, uh, putting together all of these different places uh, of scripture and seeing what the scriptures have to say about a given topic. Uh, So that's that's what we are doing tonight. Uh, So go ahead and uh, turn to Isaiah chapter 6, familiar passage to us 
but we know it well, this vision, the year that King Uzziah died, that Isaiah sees the heavenly temple, not the earthly temple. The earthly temple is a picture of the heavenly temple. It's a type uh, looking into the heavens, if you will. But here is the Lord in his throne room, in his holy throne room. And again, familiar words, but uh, listen to what we see here. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. So just pausing. The glory of God is such that even the glorious angels themselves must cover their faces, right, and cover their feet. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So try holiness. It's the perfection of holiness, the completeness of holiness. And we see his, the fullness of his glory as well. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah is calling down curses upon himself. Cursed am I. I'm cursed in the presence of this Holy One. I'm lost. I'm damned. I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm not pure in the presence of this Holy, glorious One. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal, that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Can you imagine Isaiah lying on his face in, in absolute fear and terror as though dead? Like he, he is worthy of eternal damnation as far as his unholiness is concerned, and just fear and terror and dread, a holy fear, right? A reverence for this holiness and recognizing his impurity and uncleanness. And the Lord uses his strength and ability, if you will, even here in this passage, to cleanse his lips. A picture of redemption here, uh, cleansing him from his unrighteousness. Okay, familiar passage. The Lord is high and lifted up on his throne, holy, 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 full of glory. The glory fills the temple. This is complete and total, right? Well, then Isaiah 57. So flip over to Isaiah 57. We see the same imagery used as far as high and lifted up is concerned. Now take us to the three places in Isaiah where we see that imagery of high and lifted up. And uh, notice here, beginning in verse 14, And it shall be said, Build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. And let me pause for just a moment. I'm not going to read the rest of that verse just yet. So he is high and lifted up. We see that same image, right? He inhabits eternity. He's the eternal one. His name is holy. Same imagery, right? Uh, I dwell in the high and holy place. Again, showing his greatness, his might, his glory, his his Awesomeness, right? And also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. 
Uh, here's this glorious one. Here's this mighty one. And he wants to dwell with lowly ones. We're, we're seeing him use his, his glory and might to cleanse Isaiah. We're seeing him using his glory and might and uh, holiness to want to dwell with those who are lowly and of a contrite heart. Well, then flip back just five chapters to Isaiah 52. So we've seen God in his throne room in Isaiah 6. We've seen God in his holiness and high and lifted up in Isaiah 57. But then this same image is used of the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 52. And so take a look at Isaiah 52, uh, 13 and following. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. So we see the same image of this high and lifted up one, this highly exalted one applied to the suffering servant. We we know this is speaking about Christ because we see the, the messianic prophecy there of his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. Uh, his form beyond that of the children of mankind. He didn't even look like a human. He was harmed so severely, beaten uh, into raw meat, if you will, not to, to use a ghastly image. But, but here's the high and lifted up one who is greatly humiliated, and yet kings shut their mouths at him. We see these images put together, the, the, the loftiness, the exaltation of Christ, kings shutting their mouths, and yet humiliation. But what about the New Testament consideration of this highly exalted one, (laughs) this preeminent one? Turn with me to Colossians 1. Colossians 1. Verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. We're speaking of Christ. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He has absolute preeminence. (laughs) For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So he is God himself, the very image of God and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This preeminent one, this one who is equal with God uh, before all things, is exalted and yet uses this exaltation to redeem his people. And we see the same type of imagery in Ephesians chapter 1. If you want to turn over there to see, again, very similar concept. Ephesians 1, 21. Speaking of Christ, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. 
And he put all things under his feet, God put all things under Christ's feet, and gave him as head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So we see this position of preeminence and absolute authority and exaltation. He's given to be head of all things for the sake of the church. And we see these images put together again and again, Christ's strength and might and glory, and yet it's being used for service. The strength of Christ being used to serve others. And this takes us to the very familiar passage of Philippians 2. If you want to turn to Philippians 2, we see Christ's service, how he uses his absolute supremacy here. Very familiar words once again. Let me read these. Philippians 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection, any sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This one spoken of by Paul is the same one of Isaiah 6, of Isaiah 57, of Isaiah 52. He is the preeminent one. He is the Lord of glory. And how did he use this glory, this holiness, this might, this strength, this preeminence? He humbled himself to the lowest position possible. And Paul uses that then to appeal to us to say, be like him. That's the one you want to be like. To use your strength like Christ, as Christ used his strength to serve. And how does he use it here in Philippians 2? He uses it to die for his people, in order to bring all the nations to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's redeemed a people out of every single tribe and tongue and nation. He used that strength to redeem a people to himself. And so we see the same concept then that we, that we find in Isaiah 57, to, to seat the lowly with himself. He made himself lowly in order to lift us up. In the most extreme act of service the world has ever known, Jesus has taught us the very heartbeat of God, that we are to use one's power and one's ability and one's strength and one's giftings and one's blessings for the care of the weak and the powerless. And so again then, considering Isaiah, going back to Isaiah Let's consider perhaps the most masculine machismo image of Christ in all of the scriptures. One of the servant songs, again, Isaiah 63. 
Notice his strength and his might and how it's used here. (laughs) It's a raw image. It's a powerful image. Isaiah 63, verse 1 and following. Who is this one who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Bozrah? And he... Uh, He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained All my apparel, for the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth." I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us and the great goodness of the house of Israel, that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. And he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. This image of, of wrath and, and, and the uh, uh, one who comes and he treads the wine presses and his garments are splattered with blood. This, this grisly image of conquering, of war and dominance, defeating his enemies. And the blood is, is all over his garments. And he says that, yes, this is a picture of his wrath, but this is a picture of his redemption and his salvation. This isn't a picture of of the final judgment. This is a picture of Christ coming and by his own might and in his own mighty right arm, securing salvation for his people, that he was willing to be sprinkled with our blood, taking the wrath of God upon himself, the wrath of God being poured out upon him in order to save a people, redeem a people. And he's saying, like, this is a mighty act. It's a a day of his strength, a day of his vengeance. So how does Christ use his strength? He uses it to save those who can't save themselves, to take upon the sin that we couldn't possibly repay. That if he were to throw us in debtor's prison and say, you will not get out until you pay the last cent, we would be there for all of eternity and never able to repay it. And he's saying, I came and I am the I was appalled that no one could save my people. No one could be holy and pure and perfect. So I had to do it. I had to take up salvation for myself to save the weak, the oppressed, the needy, the poor, the sick. He came to save the lost, to redeem his people. This is how Christ uses his strength. But then, who is it that Christ opposes? (laughs) Whom does Christ use his absolute supremacy against? 
If he uses his absolute might and strength to, to redeem those who can't redeem themselves, the weak, the needy, the poor, the sick, the lowly, the contrite, the humble. Well, who is it that he uses his strength against? Well, would you turn with me to Ezekiel 34 to, to begin to see this picture of those whom he's appalled with. As the Lord lambasts the shepherds of Israel, the false shepherds of Israel. Listen to what the prophet Ezekiel has to say in Ezekiel 34. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because they were, uh, there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered all over the mountains on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. You see what he's saying? He's saying, you shepherds, you have used your position of authority, the position that I have given you, the strength that I have given you. I've I've placed you over my people to care for my people. And instead of using that strength to care for them and tend them, and feed them with my word, and feed them with my truth, and and build them up in the way of the Lord. You've plundered them. You've used their uh, any good that they have for yourselves. You've made yourself fat on my sheep. It's a ghastly image, right? As Israel killed the prophets and uh, um, slaughtered the poor and the widow and, and devoured widows' houses, right? They, they were ghastly in their injustice. So what does God say in verse 7? Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd, and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep, therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, that they may not be food for them. He's saying, I'm going to use my strength and I'm going to oppose you. You who should have tended my sheep, who should have used your strength to care for those people, I'm going to use my strength against you. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep, and I will seek them out as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered. So I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out of the peoples and gather them from the countries and I will bring them into their own land and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land and they shall lie down in good grazing land. And on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. 
I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the straight, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. Sing, I'm going to use my strength to care for these weak ones. The ones you should have been tending with your strength, the delegated authority I've given you, I'm going to care for them. I'm going to oppose you, and I'm going to care for them. And you see why it's so radical then when Jesus shows up on the scene and he says, I'm the good shepherd who cares for my sheep. He's saying, I'm God. I'm the Lord God himself who's come to gather the sheep. Now, I'm not going to have you go to Amos. I know Amos is your, your favorite reading when you get to that in your morning devotions. Yes, Amos, you're always reading it, right? Uh, <laughs> we should be excited about the minor prophets when we get to them, but they're hard. They're hard to, they're hard to get through, right? But Amos circles around all of the enemies of Israel in the opening chapters. And he's zeroing in on all the injustices of the enemies. And he's circling around geographically all those who would surround his people. And he's saying, basically, I'm going to whoop up on you, nation. And then he goes to the next one, and I'm going to whoop up on you, too. And I'm going to take you to task. And he goes around all of these nations. And he says, the reason why I'm going to bring judgment is because you have failed to defend the weak and the oppressed. And I'm going to bring judgment. And can't you hear, like, in that, the the Israelite of old? Yes, God's going to whoop up on our enemies. And as he zeroes in on Israel and he says, in Israel, you do the same thing as the nations. And your judgment is going to be greater than their judgment because you know better. (laughs) And you do the exact same thing of not caring for the weak and the vulnerable. And you make them victims. Those that you should care for, you make them victims. Well, then how does he treat King Nebuchadnezzar? I know we're jumping all over the place. Again, I'm a concepts guy. Hang with me, right? As we bring all of these images together, how we see the heartbeat of the Lord. And you remember Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4? Daniel chapter 4, there's this dream that the, the king is troubled in his heart as he dreams about a tree being cut down and just the base of the tree remains and a ring is placed around the tree and the dew falls on that tree for seven times, whatever seven lengths of time is. And he tells the dream to Daniel and Daniel's like, oh, king, uh, I pray that this dream and its interpretation is for your enemies and not for you. Because what's going to happen, king, in this dream is that the angels have decreed this, have declared this, the Lord God has decreed this, that you are going to be felled like that tree. And for a period of seven uh, times, whatever that length is, uh, you are going to be like a beast of the field. Your reason is going to be taken from you. And so his nails grow long and his hair grows long and he eats the grass of the field. Can you imagine when that like first happens? Like, what, what kind of like bizarre mental illness did the Lord give Nebuchadnezzar over to? That all of his servants would be like, oh no, the king's out back, like eating grass. And people come to the castle and want to see the king, like, yeah, you're going to have to come back later. Who's that behind the castle there? You know? uh, but why does Nebuchadnezzar get humbled so severely? We know the, the obvious one. He stands on his balcony and he looks over Babylon and he says, this is, is this not Babylon, the great that I have built with my hand? So there's pride, there's arrogance. He's haughty and he's lifted himself up in his powerful, preeminent position and he's boasting in that. But it's not just that that the Lord takes him to task for. 
He says, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. And then Daniel says, break off your sins, O king, by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. King, you've set yourself up in pride and in your strength, and you've not cared for those underneath your authority. You've not used your strength that I have delegated to you, that I have given to you. You've not used it to care for those under you. And so for seven lengths of time, go eat the grass until you know who the Lord is and you know your rightful place. And how does the Lord Jesus Christ speak about the Pharisees? Pharisees, woe to you. Jesus is declaring curses. These these are like imprecations. He's praying on the Pharisees, declaring on the Pharisees, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. He lists all these woes in Matthew 23 and in Luke 20. And the one that shows up in both of those places, in Matthew 23 and in Luke 20, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses. You're not taking care of the weak, and the poor. And those who cannot care for themselves, you should use your strength and your position of prominence to lift them up and shepherd them and tend to them. And instead, you devour widows' houses so that the two mites the widow puts in to the offering plate is all she has. You've plundered her. It's a condemnation of the Pharisees, not so much a a praise for this woman's generosity that she puts in all she has, but it's a That's a condemnation on the Pharisees who who plunder her house. The Lord opposes those who use their strength to serve themselves and make themselves fat and to not care for the little ones and the weak ones. And so the very heartbeat of our God, those whom Christ uses his strength for, I know we've already established it um, pretty significantly, but Let me just give you an over. You don't have to turn to these places. You can just write these down for for future reference if you want, but just listen to the overwhelming way in which the Lord describes himself, that he wants to be known this way. This is his character. This is who he is. Psalm 10, O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed. Let me just pause. If anybody's starting to get squeamish and, and like concerned, this is not like social justice talk tonight. So don't, don't fear, okay? Okay. I'm not making like political and social applications. That's not who I am. So bear with me. Okay. Uh, oh Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted to do justice to the, to the fatherless and the oppressed. Psalm 72, he delivers the needy when he calls. He has pity on the weak and the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life. Psalm 68, a father to the fatherless, a defender of the widows, is God in his holy dwelling. This is who he wants to be known as. This is who he reveals himself as. Isaiah 1, he instructs his people to be like him, learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. Isaiah 25, oops, sorry, I'm getting ahead on the bullet points, but Isaiah 25, You have been a refuge to the poor, a refuge for the needy in their distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. 
For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm driving against a wall. The Lord's saying, I'm going to protect these ones from the ruthless, those who use their strength to oppress. Isaiah 41, so do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Jeremiah 22, this is what the Lord says. Do what is just and right. Rescue from the hand of the oppressor, the one who has been robbed. Do no wrong or violence to the foreigner, the fatherless or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place. Again, he's saying, this is my character and I want my people to be like me. Use your strength for these purposes. Matthew 5, who is it who inherits the kingdom of heaven? Who are those who are like the king and therefore the kingdom belongs to such ones? Blessed are the poor in spirit, the lowly ones. Right? The Lord cares for those who are lowly in spirit. And then James 1.27, why is it that religion that is pure and pleasing in the sight of God, why is it that it looks this way? It's because this is the type of God we serve. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. This is the very heartbeat of our God. This is how he describes himself and reveals himself, and it's how he wants us to be. But friends, there's a problem. <laughs> because who are we? <laughs> well, we are by nature wretched enemies of God. We're not the ones who are like this. Uh, by nature, we're like the shepherds of Israel. Our natural tendency is to use our strength and our ability and our prominence to serve ourselves and to build up our kingdoms and have people serve us. That's who we are by nature, right? I don't know if you, you think about this as far as the curse in Genesis chapter 3, but when God says to the serpent in Genesis 3 that he has to put enmity between the serpent and the woman. So, so here's, you know, like the, the first preaching of the gospel in Genesis 3.15, the preaching to the, the serpent I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And it goes on for the, the prophecy of Christ. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. A picture of the cross there, right? He's going to crush you, but yeah, you're going you're gonna to wound him <laughs> as he dies on the cross. But um, this idea that he has to put enmity between the seed of the woman and the serpent, it's a genuine curse to the serpent, because by nature, we're not in enmity with the serpent. By nature, we're in league with the serpent. Adam and Eve followed the serpent. We're going to listen to him instead of listening to you, God, and his authority. And so by nature, we're in league with him. And so it's a gracious provision to us that he puts enmity there, or else there'd be no enmity. Because it says, Ephesians 2 says, "...we were once objects of wrath under the sway of the prince of the power of the air." That's who we are by nature. Followers of Satan. Yes, sir. I'm going to fall in line. I'm going to be like those shepherds of Israel of old. And yet, praise the Lord, Psalm 103. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Because, friends, oops, two clicks there. What do our sins deserve? Our sins deserve 
after we've been in hell for a thousand years with no relief from anguish. They were longing for somebody to just dip their finger in water and just touch our tongue. Oh, that I could have even that relief, that after we've been there for a thousand years, we are no closer to the end than when we first began. What a ghastly image where worm never dies and fire is never quenched. And the Lord in his strength and might and glory and majesty used his preeminence to redeem us from that and to allow that punishment and wrath to fall to him instead. He should have used his strength to send us to hell forever if he were not gracious, if he didn't place his favor upon us. Right? That's, that's what our sins deserve. But the most incredible thing in the world is that he delivered us from that and he took that punishment to himself. But the world doesn't naturally live the way that Christ would have us to live, doesn't naturally live the way that he lives and calls us to live. The world naturally is exactly the opposite to to the heartbeat of God. The scriptures reveal the wickedness of men and how they think only of themselves. In Jude, verse 12, Jude 12, they shepherd only themselves. That's how shepherds of the the world think. They shepherd only themselves. They only care about themselves. Philippians 3 says their God is their bellies. They only care about their own satisfaction, their own desires, their own interests. Matthew 20, when the disciples get in a spat of who is the greatest, and they're trying to claim preeminence for themselves. Who gets to sit at your right hand in glory, Jesus? Jesus says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. That's how the world is naturally. That's our hearts naturally. And Jesus says, it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Jesus' standard is to fly directly in the face of the world's standard. The world says, look out for number one. If I I don't take care of myself, who else is? Nobody else ever volunteered for the job, so I need to to get ahead. In the corporate world, you've got to climb the ladder faster than the other guy, keep the others down. In the financial sector, greed wins. Take as much for yourself as you can. In social settings, put others down so you look bigger, so that you look better, right? In any sphere of authority, make sure there are those under you serving you. Lord it over. That's the world of paganism. Get to the highest position that you can get to. Serve yourself. Build your own little kingdom. I have the privilege of teaching quite a number of Eastern students, Chinese students, Japanese students, Korean students who come to the seminary. They're a delight and a joy. It's fascinating to hear their cultural differences, though, being raised in naturally pagan culture. Like I'm not like throwing stones at my you know, Chinese brothers and sisters and, and Japanese brothers and sisters. It's just that's a, a pagan culture that they've been steeped in, whereas in the Western world, I know that we've moved on from a, a Christian society to a post-Christian society as far as the Western world is concerned. But still, we have the benefits of being raised in what, what historically has been a Christian culture. And so we have blessings of that, just like common blessings of that, right? But I hear from my Eastern brothers and sisters about how naturally it is 
to assess socially your standing based on age and prominence and always keep calculations to know where you are in relation to others because the younger serves the older, always. Those who are socially appropriately under must serve those who are higher. It's just the, it's the way they, they think. And it's, it's hard. My students share how it's hard to get out of that mentality. It's just part of their culture. And I even had a student ask me uh, my first year teaching. So my first year teaching, I started at, what, 36. He asked me, how old are you? I said, 36. And he's like, I'm older than you. <laughs> and it, it was like, I don't, I don't have to submit to you in the same way I have to submit to the older professors uh, at, at the seminary. Uh, it's just ingrained in the culture. But in God's economy, he flips the script. Did you remember he, he, um, um, uh, Jacob crosses his arms and says, the older will ser- serve the younger. And Jesus says, you want to be great? Serve. You want to be first? Race to be last. That's what it is to be prominent in the kingdom of heaven. Now, friends, I'm not speaking of social justice, as I already gave the caveat, right? Uh, So hopefully you're not thinking, oh, no, we have a bleeding heart counselor up here. There's a liberal agenda. Pretty soon he's going to start talking about shalom and missional this or social justice that. No, no, no. Others can make social or political applications. That's, That's not who I am. I'm applying these things to us. We men in this room and our spheres, our spheres of authority, our spheres of prominence, our spheres of blessing and any goodness or gifts that we have been given, that we are called to use our strength to serve. For those of you who have wives, as they have have been placed in a position, a weaker position as, as far as they're called to submit and, and husbands are called to lead. We're not to lord it over them. We're to serve, to use that position to care for them. Or, or for those of you who have kids, it's not like, hey, I'm the king of the house and you follow my rules. It's, let me shepherd you to Christ. Obey me only as far as I obey Christ. Follow me only as I follow Christ. I, I want to lead you to Jesus, Right? to serve them, to bring them to Christ. For those of you who have employees under you, that's not to hold them down. Uh, Yeah, know your rightful places, to to bless them. Often the question is, well, how much can we get away with paying this person? Instead, we should be asking, how much can I pay this person? How much can we afford to bless this person, right? Or in the church, how can we use that to serve others, those in our respective spheres, we must not take advantage. We must not spend it on ourselves in our own little kingdom. We must use it for their good. Those that the Lord has entrusted to our care, whatever that is, whoever that is, that's the very heartbeat of God. So any wealth, any strength, Any superiority, as the Westminster Larger Catechism talks about, like superiors and inferiors, or it's not talking about like better or worse, it's just position of superiority that the Lord has placed us in. It must be used to serve. Any blessing that is a gift from God that comes down from the Father of lights, it's it's Him who has delegated it to us, and He wants us to use it not like the shepherds of old, to devour those under us, 
but to care for those under us. I'm an only child, and growing up, we didn't have a whole lot of anything. I grew up pretty poor and uh, didn't go out to eat pretty much ever. Uh, Only vacation was going camping two nights a year (laughs) because it's all we could afford kind of thing. And uh, this is not an illustration about me at all. It's an illustration about my parents. They poured everything into me. I'm the first person in my family, in my extended family, to go to college. The only person to go to grad school. And they're like beyond themselves that I'm going to be a doctor soon. Like we never thought that would be possible. Again, it's not, it's not about me. It's my parents poured everything into seeking to see me gifted to the Lord. My mom prayed every day that he would be a man after God's own heart. It was kind of like Hannah praying for Samuel. Lord, if you give me a boy, she wanted a boy and only one boy. Just give me one boy and I'm good. And, uh, and I'll give him to the Lord. And that is so precious to me because they did not have much at all. And they poured themselves out for the sake of the church, for the sake of serving others, for the sake of the kingdom of Christ. And to end then tonight where we began, the preeminence of Christ in Philippians chapter 2, that he is high and lifted up, that he is in the very form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be held onto, something to be grasped. Paul says, let this mind be in you. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It's the very heartbeat of our God. Christ gave everything, poured out everything for the sake of those who are weak and lowly and incapable of doing anything for themselves. And Paul says, we need to do likewise. We need to be like him and use every bit of our prominence and strength and blessing to serve as Christ served us. Let's pray together. Father, how we love the Lord Jesus Christ. How we love the glorious gospel of Christ. The Lord in his might and strength, by the strength of his mighty right arm, he accomplished salvation as wrath fell upon him instead of us. We are undeserving wretches in our own right, Father. And yet you have placed your love and favor upon us and lifted us up, we lowly, into the place of prominence, seated with you, as Ephesians says, seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Lord, this is too much for us. It is glorious. We just want to be like our elder brother. We want to be like his masculinity and his strength to serve those who are weak, those who are under us, those who have been entrusted to our care. Lord, may we have the very heartbeat of Christ, which is the very character of our God. May it be so among all of us men here in this room, even beginning more and more this night. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.